Rabbi Sai, last week we talked about Tzaddik. We finally had finished describing the soul, the dynamics, the complexities of what an Ashama are. And we talked about the nature of the struggle, the nature of the war between the godly and animal souls. And we talked last week about the Tzaddik. And I defined Tzaddik for you. I wanted to find a comprehensive and a distinct, a concise uh, definition for the term. And I told you Tzaddikim are inspired people. That was the phrase that we used. Inspired people. And when you're inspired, regular things are not a big deal. And that's the definition of a tzaddik, because he's an inspired person, or she's an inspired person. Regular Yiddishkeit's not the issue. The issues are deeper, more personal, more pneumistic. And we also touched on the perfect tzaddik, who's essentially not a human being. <laughs> it's a completely different kind of an existence altogether. Today we're going to talk about the Rosha. Okay, now we've invented a very, very, very diplomatic, a PC, a politically correct word for Rosha. We've called the Rosha the repeated... Repeating Balchova, that's how we refer to the Russia. You know, it's like the person who's on a diet between meals. So the <laughs> Russia is a repeating Balchova. And sometimes he's repeating not that often, sometimes he's repeating quite often, sometimes he's repeating incredibly often. But this is what we deal with the Russia. Well, chapter 11, it's one of the shortest chapters in the Tanya. I'll tell you to the Russia. And here, too, I want to give you a concise definition, a very, very, very narrow, very, very short, uh, comprehensive Definition and the definition of the Russia that I'm using is he's a compromised person. But he's not a repeated Bautchuva. Russia is a, a repeated Bautchuva, somebody who's struggling and trying is a Bautchuva. He's trying to do the right thing, but he's not a Russia. A Russia, somebody's doing cuts, he's, he's doing it on purpose, or he doesn't. We are learning Tanya. And <laughs> Tanya is offering us mystical definitions to Sadiq Ben in Russia. And uh, within the framework of the Tanya, that's exactly what a Rasha is. A Rasha is not a bad person. A Rasha is not a failure of a person. A Rasha is a compromised person. In other words, a Rasha is a person who's not winning 100% of the time. He may be winning 99% of the time, maybe winning 98% of the time, maybe winning 51% of the time, or 90%, of the, 10% of the time. But the definition of a Rasha is a compromised person. But that's most of the people. Yes, that's most of the people. You see, there are the standard definitions of Tzadik Ben Yerusha, which you know. Tzadik Ben Yerusha, according to the standard definitions, are people who are defined simply by what they do. A Tzadik is more than 50% good, a Russia is more than 50% evil, and a Ben is 50-50. In the Zayhar, we have different definitions. Where a Tzadik is somebody with Yetzirah, is bent towards the Yetzirah, as I described it to you last week, he's an inspired person. And a Rosh is a person whose Yetzirah type is bent towards the Yetzirah. That means he's practically compromised. The frequency of the compromise is less of the issue in terms of the fundamental definition. Right. What makes a Rosh a Rosh is simply the fact that he's compromised. Now before we get fancy, let's be simple. Nobody likes to be called the Rosh. Why? Because Rosh means a bad person. Right? In, conju- in convention, Russia means an evil person. Right? Some would say that Russia is actually the letters Ra with a shin in the middle for whatever reasons. Um, and this is part of what you have to get used to. When you learn the Tanya, is that in the model of the Tanya, in the lexicon of the Tanya, Russia is not bad. In the classic model, Russia is bad. Um, in the Tanya, the Russia is simply a person. He's not a complete master over himself. He's not winning 100% of the time. And as you so correctly said, that's many people, or most people, are in that category, compromised people. And this is one of the things you have to get used to when you learn the Tanya. As I've told you repeatedly, that the censor of the Tanya, the censor of the Tanya, he wasn't a Jew. He was a guy in Vilna. He was a smart guy very learned, he knew Hebrew, and he looked over the Tanya and approved its publishing in, in Zarist, Russia. And when asked why he approved the Tanya, he said, because this book removes the child from the world. The, the thing about the Tanya is, is that it doesn't allow you to fool yourself. The Tanya is very honest, and the truth hurts. But on the other hand, the truth is very, very, very real. 
Rasha in the language of the Tanya is not a bad person. Rasha in the language of the Tanya, a person is not winning 100% of the time. Now, the Tzaddik is an inspired person. When a person is inspired, winning, uh, in other words, not being compromised is not an issue. You, you, when you're an inspired person, you do the right thing and you don't do the wrong thing because you're inspired. The Rasha is uninspired. But not, not being inspired alone does not make you a Rasha. You can be uninspired and uh, not be compromised. To be uninspired and not compromised, which we're going to be talking about in Mitzvah next week, we call that Benini. He's an uninspired person, but he's not compromised, which means to say he realizes that when I'm inspired, I have more power, when I'm inspired, I have more energy, I have more ability to win. When I'm uninspired, I lack that enthusiasm, I lack that energy, I lack that will. And therefore, the Bainani, the uninspired person who doesn't want to be compromised, compensates for lack of inspiration with self-control, with Kabbalah sale. What makes a person a Rasha in the model of the Tanya is that he's compromised. Compromise means to say he's uninspired, at least he's periodically uninspired. He's not perpetually, he's not constantly, he's not contiguously in the state of passion and inspiration. And as a result, he goes through spells where he is, for all intents and purposes, in a spiritual drought. And when you're in a spiritual drought, you don't have power. And you have to survive. And if you don't survive, you compromise. That's all. The Ebisha tells us what to do. Hashem gives us mitzvahs. Hashem tells us how we're supposed to behave. Hashem tells us how we are uh, not supposed to behave. And when we don't have the ability to win 100% of the time, we're compromised. We're weak. We're diminished. Now this is a condition which we don't have to read about in books or even in magazine articles. You know, or even on the, the uh, internet magazines. This is a condition that all we need to do is take a look in the mirror. And we understand full well what it means compromised people because we're all compromised we all have no, I shouldn't say we're all many of us are compromised some of us have smaller compromises others of us have bigger compromises and let me put it to you in psychological terms rather than religious terms we find ourselves incapable of doing what we want ourselves to do not what Hashem wants us to do we want ourselves to do we find ourselves incapable of not doing Things that we don't want to do. That's what compromise means. I mean, the best example in my personal life about compromise is called snooze. S-N-O-O-Z. It's a small little button that comes on the modern clock and snoozes begimati etahari in Latin. <laughs> you set the clock for 5 o'clock because you want to get up at 5 o'clock. And you don't get up at 5 o'clock, it's not a big deal. You're not going to get fired. You're not going to lose your job. The world's not going to come to an end. But it's a sign of compromise. It's a, it's, I don't have the strength to do what I wish to do. If I didn't want to get up at 5 o'clock, I should not have set the clock for 5. I should have set it for 5.15, for 5.30, for 5.45. If I set the clock for 5 o'clock, I want to get up at 5. My inability to make myself do what I want to do is called compromise. Now, we forgive ourselves. And it's not so terrible to forgive ourselves. The Alter Rebbe is simply saying the fact. That's what Russia means. Russia does not necessarily mean bad. It certainly doesn't mean evil. It means compromise. It means weak. Now before I even go into the particulars of Russia, I want to give you a, a piece of information which is critical to the Hasidic way of thought and to Yiddishkeit. And I, I think that Lahavel, even just in a, uh, in a human sense, it has credibility. In other words, even without Yiddishkeit, this has basis. One of the things that's discussed a lot in, in, the, in the model of a Hasidic life, as it conforms to the structure of the Tanya, is the idea of Eskafia. Eskafia means essentially self-control, discipline. And the essence of Eskafia is not to give in to temptation. Now, some temptations are bad. Some temptations are wrong. Some temptations are signs of weakness. Right? All temptations feel good. 
Iskafya means not to give into temptation. Of course, the temptations you least want to give into are temptations that are bad. And of course, and so forth. A temptation which is not good is not so terrible. A temptation which is a sign of weakness is even less severe, like our good friend chocolate. <laughs> right? the, there's a little passage in the Hayyim Yoyim which says it all. It's talking about the Alter Rebbe's Hasidim, the Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe, who were really ideal Hasidim. In other words, they actually practiced what the Alter Rebbe preached. There was no messing around. And they all understood the idea of not allowing themselves temptations that are legitimate, that are kosher, completely permitted, based on a concept called Bittl Hataiva. The literal translation of the words Bittl Hataiva means to break temptation. But what it really means, Bittl Hataiva means, to gain control of our natural weakness. In, 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 in Hasidus, in Tanya chapter 27, and at our pace it takes about 27 weeks to get there, there's a discussion about Eskafi. Eskafi means it's kosher and I don't want to have it. I'm not going to allow myself to do it. There's religious reasons for Eskafi. There are holy reasons. There are sacred reasons for a person not eating kosher food because they enjoy it and so forth. But there's also very practical reasons. And the practical reason is if life is about not being compromised. And of course, in the model of the Tanya, compromise means Russia. Because remember, we're not defining Russia as an evil person. We're defining a, a Russia as a weak person who gives into weakness, even if it's infrequently. The Tzaddik is inspired, and the Russia is uninspired. But in addition to being uninspired, the Russia is weak. How frequently is he weak? It could be once in a month, it could be once in a week. Could be every day, could be once in a year, could happen one time in his life. The key is that Russia has weakness. How do you react? How do you offset weakness? How do you fortify yourself? How do you make yourself so strong that you're never weak? How does a person put themselves into a position that when the alarm rings at five o'clock, they get up day after day after day? It's not simply because you've gotten enough sleep or because you're organized enough. It's about a, a mastery over self. And the Al-Tarebbe's Hasidim understood that they need to put them through, through a regimen, a regime, they have to force themselves to put themselves into a position where they break the whole tendency of weakness. And the beginning of the tendency of weakness is temptation. We're not talking about sin. We're just simply talking about temptation. Not all temptation is sin, you know. Some temptation can be sometimes linked to mitzvahs also, but it's temptation. So they had this concept that they have to break the temptation tendency. How? By not giving into it. And Bitala Taiva was one of the first steps in being a real chassid. Because being a real chassid means not being compromised. Not being compromised means not losing even once in a while. And they understood that in order to be able to achieve this, they have to gain mastery over themselves. In order to gain mastery over themselves, they cannot just stop themselves when a temptation comes along. They cannot just win a war when the war happens. They need to fortify themselves. They need to make themselves strong people. So they developed the philosophy that says, anything I want, I'm not going to have. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a sin. If it's wrong, I don't want it. Why? Because I want to become a strong person. And a strong person means I want to become a master over the one person, the one thing I can actually control, which is myself. And they devoted their lives to breaking the weakness tendency that we all have. You know, one of the great Shmuel Munkah stories, uh, Shmuel Munkah was a chassad al-tareb. And he was the jester. He was, oh, he was the comic. He was the guy who made everybody laugh. Ha-ha. Shmuel Munkah was a very, very great chassad. Shmuel Munkis may have been a tzaddik, may have been the inspired person we talked about before. Shmuel Munkis, the previous Rebbe once by Fabrengen said, when you say Shmuel Munkis, it's okay to say Reb Shmuel Munkis. Eliyahu Hanavi would visit him. Elijah the prophet would visit him. Now Elijah the prophet meets me too, visits me also. The only problem is, not only you don't know about it, I don't know about it either, you understand. Shmuel Munkis, big bomb of the So there's a great Shmuel Munkis story. It's one of those stories everybody tells and laughs. But it's a deep story. There was a chassid shafabreng. And all the chassidim were sitting around. 
And of course, at a Fabrengen, you drink and you speak and you eat, right? We're sitting at a Fabrengen and the food ran out. So somebody says, let's see who has the butcher live nearby. And butchers in those days, the shaykhet, not the butcher, the ritual slaughter, he didn't have a lot of money. But part of the way that he was paid for his services as a shaykhet were certain parts of the animal. I mean, the most delectable parts of the animal went to the butcher. The lungs, and the spleen, and maybe the brain. I mean, the parts that everyone was <laughs> dying to eat. And the lungs, like eating, chewing up without flavor. I mean, it's a, I don't, lungs in America go in the garbage. But in the old country, they would cook them. Just like cook them for like a few days for, for the rubbery quality to go out of it. So the shaykh had got the lung as a bonus, as a compensation for the shrit. Now I can eat a lung. I mean, a lung is, is huge. So they come to the wife, to the butcher's house. He isn't home. And his wife says, here, she had gibrat in the lung. She, she knew how to prepare it. And she gave it to them. They go into, she brings it back to the base mother. She put it down on the table. And it looked good. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, somebody is eyeing it and he's reaching for it. And Shmuel Munkis quickly grabs it and he pulls the entire tray to himself. It's sitting in front of him. Now, nobody wants to look like a glutton and like a grab young, but uh, would you take a piece and pass it? You know, and he's holding it. So somebody actually asks him for it. And he says, no, no, let it stay here for a while. <coughs> so then somebody reaches for it. Someone reached for it, he grabbed it. So it was a little tug of war. So he held it like this here. And he's holding, he's embracing this, tr- this platter of long... And then people sort of lost their inhibition and they lost their, their um, sense of self and they started to uh, engage. So he gets up and he goes away from the table and they chase him. So he starts to dance around the room holding this platter of lung and eventually they corner him. He was right next to the garbage can and the garbage can didn't look exactly like my garbage can and your garbage can. And the whole lung went into the garbage can and it was insoluble. There was no way you were going to get it. You couldn't salvage that lung. Unsalvageable. So they're very upset. They don't understand. Want to eat? They don't let us eat. And he's in the greatest of moods. So they tell him, we're going to get We're going to whip you. So he lays down on the table. Says by all means. So they get a belt and they give him a few pitch. He climbs off the table like nothing happened. And he sits down. The fabrengen goes on. Fifteen minutes later, the wife of the sheikh is running in, screaming if they ate the long. It was treif. It was treif. He knew he was a spiritual person. And the room goes silent, stunned. You understand? Now this is another Shmuel Munkis, the Altarebbe's comic, the Altarebbe's jester. And they turn to him and say, Shmuel, Pravis Kunzen, you're doing tricks. Chassidim used to call miracles tricks. Pravis Kunzen, miracles. He saved them off meeting Treif. He says, not a trick. He says, how do you know it was treif? He says, I didn't know it was treif. Believe me, he knew it was treif. But it's what he said. He says, he says when I was with the the first time, he told me, anything you want very much, don't have. When they brought in that long, I wanted it like my life depended on it. I decided that I'm not supposed to have it. And then I discovered everybody else wants it as much as I. So nobody should have it. So I threw it in the garbage. <laughs> So they put him back on the table and they gave him Vaiteshmitz for his Ruch HaKadosh. But they whipped him a little different and he was whipped by different people. This is a story. Now, in, I don't think it's such a far out stretch to say that Pumul Munkis felt that it was safe. I mean, many, Allah Khalid can feel, a really, really pious Jew can feel, an inspired person can feel, not kosher. But the purpose of the story is to bring out this idea that the Alter Rebbe would encourage his Hasidim you want something, don't have it. This is not just about deprivation and morbidity. It's about shviras hataiva. It's breaking the entire temptation component of our lives. We're not talking about sin necessarily. We're talking about weakness. Because weakness is the reason for compromise. The reason we don't win 100% of the time it's because we eat chocolate. Now what does chocolate have to do with winning? It has to do with developing character. Right? That's the holy word. Right? That's the word that's used always in, in politics. Character. And you develop character not when you have a test. When you have a test, you cannot win. You develop character by living a certain type of life. Now I want to say something very, very carefully over here. Um, 
we uh, this has to be carefully monitored. You, you can't become a, 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 you know a recluse who eats bread and water because you'll go insane. The Altarebbe's Hasidim were not ordinary people. To, to never allow yourself a temptation, uh, it's a standard, it's a status, but to be very, very careful not to destroy yourself in the process. In other words, life in general, and Avayda Pnimis, working on character in particular, needs guidance. It's a very personal, very individual exercise. And you can't just, you know, I heard that the Altarebbe's Hasid never ate chewing gum, so I won't eat chewing gum. Life doesn't begin and end with not eating chewing gum. It's it, it, life in general and Yiddishkeit and avoid in particular are very personal. So if, the, if you're taking what I'm saying seriously, how to implement this is not, you know, some would say it's coffee in our generation. It's not what you eat. It's what you say. And it's very credible. Control the temptation to babble, <laughs> and you'll gain a considerable amount of self-control. But anyway, having said that, this is. This is the essence of a Rasha. A Rasha is a person who is accustomed to a longness of temptation. And as a result, he fails tests. Doesn't matter how frequently. And when, if a person wishes to be not a Rasha, in other words, a person wishes to be not compromised, meaning to say, practically speaking, that when they set themselves to do something, they do it. When the Abisha says no, it's no. And when the Abisha says do it, they listen and they're on time. And there's no uh, equivocating, and there's no failure. It doesn't begin and end with those acts. It begins and ends with who you are as a person. And this is the essence of the Rasha. The Rasha, practically speaking, is a compromised person. In other words, he loses some of his battles to the Yetzir Hara, about sin, about omission, you know, the sins of commission, the sins of omission, meaning I missed a chance to daven, I missed an opportunity to do another person a favor. The root of that is weakness. Weakness about things that are by themselves not sin. And therefore, the, the struggle that we discussed before is not simply a struggle of not sinning, it's a struggle of developing character, it's a struggle of escape, it's a struggle of fortifying, strengthening ourselves by, uh, at least in a small way, not allowing themselves some temptation for the express purpose of strengthening our character. So our chapter is about the Rosh. At your own risk. Uh, could it become more pleasure of denying yourself than having it? Anything could become. Um, How does a person know when he the reality of what we're discussing really requires if not a counselor a good friend you know when you decide to buy a car you consult a person when you decide to buy a house you consult a whole bunch of people not a charge when a person wants to do you want to work on character you certainly need somebody else to consult. And if you can't find somebody who, who's in a position to teach, at least you need a good friend. And that, those are the kinds of things you want to look out for. You want to look out for creating a monster, creating a new idol, the idol of piety. And you also want to look out for the, for the devil in all of this. And that's depression. The, the risk in taking yourself this seriously is becoming so caught up in yourself that you fall into a sadness and a depression. And that's not allowed to occur. You know, give in to your temptations, don't fall. Because when you fall into a depression, you're, you're, you're never more, you're never weaker. You're never more compromised. People sin most of the time when they're weak, not when they're tempted. Temptations are all over the place. But weakness, emotional weakness, makes us fodder for temptation, makes us easy pickings. And weakness, one of the critical forms of being weak is being emotionally weak. So you don't do these kinds of disciplines. You try to get someone to at least listen and understand your opinions, take your struggles. But understand that we're not talking philosophy here. You know, we're talking about life. Dr. talks about the Rosh. And he says there's so many different levels of Rosh. In general, there's two categories of Rosh. Just like last week, we talked about two categories of tzaddik. So this week we're talking about two categories of rasha. 
The two categories of tzaddik we talked about last week were the inspired person who's still human, who's struggling, and the inspired person who's, no, who's not human at all. He has absolutely no evil within him, and he exists either to elevate the world or to bring God into the world, as we discussed. The same is true of Rasha. Rasha means a compromised person. There's two categories of Rasha. A Rasha who's compromised and has a conscience, and a Rasha who's a compromised person who has no conscience anymore. That's called a perfect Rasha, a comprehensive Rasha. He's perfected the condition of compromise. He has, no, he has absolutely no guilt. <coughs> he doesn't, doesn't care. He has absolutely no remorse, no sense of this is wrong and I shouldn't be doing this. He's beyond, he's beyond regret. He's beyond feeling bad for himself. These are two categories of Rasha. So they're extremes. Pardon? They're, they're, they're not extremes. extremes. They're gradations. Because okay. there's a lot of steps. A lot of steps. The extreme would be the inspired Jew versus the person who has no feelings. The perfect tzaddik and the perfect Yashua. Those are extremes. We're dealing with uninspired people who are compromised, right? You can be uninspired and not compromised. That's Benjamin. Inspired is tzaddik. Compromised is Russia. Russia doesn't mean I'm weak. I give in to my weakness. So the Rabbi says there's so many levels of giving. A person give in to his weakness one time. A person give in to his weakness in the smallest ways. Now we look at such a person and say, wow, is he holy? Is he pious? Is he righteous? But that's not how he should view himself. Because of course, Avadis Hashem, spiritual growth, connection to God is very personal. And if a person is so close to uh, self-control that compromise to them means failing, you know, to think a bad thought. How terrible is to think a bad thought? You think a bad thought once in a year. You're a pretty holy person. But if you're that person to yourself, that's compromise. That's Russia. Speak bad words. Do a bad action. Miss an opportunity to a bad deed. So Alter Rebbe says there is incredibly different, a great variety of different levels of Russia. Some Rishayim are very disciplined, have an enormous amount of self-control, and are compromised infrequently. From time to time they lapse. From time to time it can be once in a life, once in a year, once in a month. And then of course there are people who are far more compromised, which means to say that they're much more easily um, um, weak and allow themselves to do things that they don't want to do. Two things that are wrong, which are against the tide, against their own judgment, their own will, because of their, their uh, you know, their, the whole temptation issue that we talked about before. So there's various different levels of Rasha. So if a person is a Rasha, that means that they're practically compromised, and the frequency of their compromise is very, very low. Which is an incredible, can you imagine being that disciplined, you know? Once in three months, you think something you shouldn't think, or say something you shouldn't do. To us, that's an incredible madrega. It's a big tzaddik. To themselves, it's weakness. So what they have to do is tshuva. A person who sins more frequently, now I don't like to use the word sin because it frightens people away, so we'll use <laughs> political correct terms like compromised. People who are compromised more frequently, and again, listen to how I'm defining it. It's not just God told you and you're not listening. You said to yourself and you didn't listen. You made for yourself a standard and didn't maintain it. That's the key to Russia. Russia means I am not capable of doing what I want to do. I'm not capable of disciplining myself about something which I want to discipline myself. This is not philosophy. This is life for the vast majority of human beings. It's not about I, sh- I shouldn't have done it because I got caught. I shouldn't have done it because God said. I shouldn't have done it because I feel like a piece of garbage. I don't like myself. And yet we're weak. So the Russia is doing chova. Russia is doing chova. Now sometimes the tshuva helps. What does the tshuva help mean? You don't repeat the offense. And sometimes the tshuva becomes a revolving door. And this is the condition that so many of us find ourselves in so frequently. The Al-Tarebbe employs a manachazal. He quotes a rabbinic statement that says, quote, Rishoyim Malayim Haratis. The trademark of Arasha is constantly regretting what he did. <clears throat> The trademark of a constant, of a compromised person is, oh, if I had only not done that, 
And what was the big deal? I could have controlled myself. I could have disciplined myself. It wasn't that big a deal. Why did I have to give in the same stupid temptation over and over again? I know exactly where it comes from. I know exactly when it's going to come. I'm all prepared. It shows up on the scene. I'm helpless. Control yourself. And this, this, is the, this is the condition that so many of us know so well. We're compromised. We care. We care. We want to do the right thing. We feel terrible about it. We fight. And sometimes we win. And every time you win, it's an incredible achievement. And it's an achievement worth celebrating. But so frequently, or from time to time, we give in. We feel terrible about it. And then what do we do? We give in. And then what do we do? You feel terrible about it. And then what do we do? We give in. Sometimes, in fact, the reaction to feeling terrible is doing it again because somehow it makes us feel better. Right? It's called the revolving door. You're going around and around in a circle. This is life for so many people. So many of us. This is, this is the condition that we're in. We constantly feel that. Here's the upside. We're aware. We're Jewish. We care. Right? Who said that best? We care. <laughs> Bill Clinton has a... Uh, um, a monopoly on caring and being sincere. We, we feel bad. And we look at ourselves and we admit to ourselves that we don't have the ability to prevent it from happening again. You know, people ask this question all the time. I'm, I'm asked this question and I'm not comfortable with it because I'm no tzaddik. I'm no benini. I'm not perfect. People say, I did something wrong. I do tshuva. And I know I'm going to repeat. I know I'm going to do it again. Who are we kidding? And the Rebbe says, if the tshuva is sincere, if you really don't want to repeat it, and when you say I won't do it again, you mean it, the tshuva has credibility and you don't get punished for it and it can perhaps even cleanse and so forth. But we all, many of us find ourselves in the revolving door of compromise. Again, I'm using compromise because I don't want to use the word sin because I want everybody to think that this class is very wonderful. And it's a, it's a terrible place to be. And if we're real servants of God, we would like to interrupt it. But for many of us, it's life. For many of us, it's life. So I want to tell you a story. <coughs> there are several points in telling this story. And I, I want to talk about this concept of, of, about, of a Russia, of a, of a compromised person doing tshuva. I heard this story from Rebbe Mendel Fotefas. If you've been to these classes, you heard Rebbe Mendel Fotefas's name. Because I, you know, he was a very special person. His Fabrengans had a special magic. So, you know, what I know, you have to know. That's just the way the world works. <laughs> so, Rabendel would tell the same story again and again. It was one of his stories that he would constantly repeat. Rabendel could sit a whole night and entertain hundreds of people and say virtually nothing. That was his genius. He would sit and everyone, he would tell one story, it took him five hours, he'd sit there. And, and he was the master of digression and distraction. And it was, it was a class for Brenger. Rabendel is Rabbi Zalman's grandfather, his mother's father. Is, uh, ah, his mother. So the has this story about two Yidin who were both Hasidim but they had taken different paths to Hasidus. One had become a Hasid as a young man and the other had become a Hasid as an old Hasid, as an old man as a senior citizen. <coughs> they knew each other from childhood. They had learned together in Yeshiva and they were very close friends. A half a century passes and they're both sitting by Malta Nebbe by Dalta Nebbe. And naturally, a meeting like this was incre- in- incredibly meaningful and fortuitous. They got together, they hugged, they kissed, and there was a fabrengen. And of course, everybody was curious to see what these two old mates are going to discuss. And they sat and they talked. So Reuben says to Shimon, one says to the next, tell me, you know, I've been in Chesidus for the last 30 years. Where have you been in the interim? He says, I can summarize my entire life with four translations of the word Ashamnu. After we say the Shemayin Es, after we say the Amida, after we say the prayer, that we stand, the, you know, we confess. It's called Vidui, confession. And after we do confession, we do what's told Tachanan. We plead. When we, 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 when we lower our heads. But there's something called like, Vidui, confession. And the structure of the confession is that it follows the order of the Aleph Beis. Oshamnu, Bogadnu, Gazanu, Dibarnu, Hevinu. Aleph Beis, give without heads of the translation of the word Oshamnu means we have sinned. Now we can either mean the collective we of the Jewish people or we can mean all the scattered pieces of ourselves but let's not get into it. He said, when I was young I was a student of Satna Yeshiva what I do all day long 
we studied Torah and we uh, engaged in religion. And I, I considered myself quite pious. I considered myself a pretty holy guy. I was not entirely honest of my assessment of myself. But in my view, I was, I was up there amongst the most righteous. You know, me and Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai were sort of on the same level. Wow. <laughs> and I would read the Vidu, I would read the confession every day, and I would say to myself, why am I saying this? I haven't sinned. I've been sitting in my Spanish all day long, praying and learning. It. I sinned. So I came to the conclusion that Ashamnu means we sin. It's everybody out there. The handful of us in here, we're not the we. The we is them. They sinned. And I found comfort in that interpretation. Ashamnu means I am confessing for their sins, not for my own sins. As I got wiser, it dawned on me that I was quite arrogant and self-absorbed. Ashamnu means they sinned. How do you know? Did you meet them? And they came to the conclusion means Ashamnu means I know I didn't sin. They didn't sin either. Everybody's righteous. Everybody's pious. You get to know people. You see, everybody's wonderful. But then I actually started to study some Musir, some ethics, and I realized how childish, how disingenuous, how self-serving I was being. You know, the analogy for this is very simply. If you want to hit a bullseye every time, you go to a shooting range, first shoot the arrow and then make the circle around it and you'll always be in the center, you know. If you define righteousness by yourself, you will be righteous no matter what you do. And I finally was able to concede that I'm no, I'm no tzaddik. I'm not the worst person on the planet, but my opinion of self as this righteous, pious person for whom God has to invent a new Ganeden is childish. It's ridiculous, it's not credible, and so forth and so on. And I came to the conclusion that Ashamnu means I sinned. Not them, not no one, I but there was a fundamental weakness in the Asham. When a person confesses, a person says, I did something wrong. What's the problem with that confession? The problem with that confession is the likelihood of them being a repeat offender. So I had to console myself. I said, Asham knew I sinned. I'll probably sin again. I, said, I feel bad, but I'll probably sin again. I said to myself, I'm compromised, but I'm not a liar. I don't want to. I've done things that are wrong. In all likelihood, I will do it again. Why? I'm compromised. I feel bad about it, but I'm not going to lie. He says, then I came to Hasid, I came to the Alter Rebbe, I started to learn the Tanya, I learned the Yerushat Shuvah. And I learned a brand new definition of Hasham. Not only it's honest, but it's real. I have sinned. And I won't do it again. I will not sin again. I will not repeat it. And the Mendel would finish the story with bang and and I won't repeat the sin again. Now, making such a resolution is not even worth the paper it's printed on, as the expression goes, unless there's teeth. You understand? Tshuva can't simply be, I feel bad. I wish I won't do it again. And this is where Avoida comes in. When a person is about Tshuva, right? And that's the truth. We are about the Tshuva. We're not rushers, we're not sinners. We're compromised people. But we're compromised people with a conscience. You know, we sin, we, we repent between sins. For some of us, that's a few times a day. For some of us, a few times an hour. For some of us, a week. But you know what I'm saying? It's a revolving door. We're not bad people. We want to do tshuva. What we don't appreciate is that tshuva is not only, I won't do it again. Tshuva is the commitment to the exercise that prevents its repetition. This is where this idea of bitala taiva, breaking the temptation, comes in learning how to be disciplined in life as a whole is the only way we can be disciplined to protect ourselves against our tendencies towards weakness. I've told you this story before. This is such an incredible story. I was young and a lot smarter than I am now. I've gotten dumb in my old age and it's good. It's good. It's good. Dumb but honest. <laughs> or dumb but experienced. I'm not that experienced. I'm not that old and I'm not that dumb yet. I'll get dumb. But when I was 20, I was a know-it-all. And I knew a person, a firm person, who was quite close to, who had a cocaine problem. <clears throat> they weren't a heavy user. They never ever purchased the cocaine, but they had friends, you know. They ran to the right circles. A firm person who had a problem. 
And the, this person confided in me that they had this weakness with cocaine. Now, I was very young and stupid. And so I asked questions. I never do it by myself. I never buy the cocaine. But when I'm in this circle of people and everybody else is being entertained, I entertain myself as well. And then this person offered me an interesting piece of information, which I didn't know. And that is that it's impossible to snort cocaine by itself. It'll kill you. You mix it with a benign substance. I hope I'm not giving anybody an education here. <coughs> that you can buy over the counter in the drugstore. That dilutes the cocaine. And uh, that's how it's snorted. So I say, I'm sorry? I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I don't think it's baby powder for some reason. So I said to this person, so how do you get a hold of this substance? Oh, I have a supply at home. I said, so throw it out. No, 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 I can't throw it out. It's too expensive. And just in case. How many years ago was it? 25 years ago? Okay. Throw it out. No, I'm not going to throw it out. And to me, this was so... It was a mirror of me. You know, you talk about the fact that you have a weakness. You talk about the fact you want to come to weakness, but you want to hold on to the weakness just for that rare occasion where, you know what? I will allow myself the weakness. This is, this is the realm of the Russia. And again, we don't want to use the word evil because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't even want to use the word sinner because it makes us quasi-uncomfortable. So using the word compromised. Compromised means we do things that are wrong from time to time. And the meaning of the word wrong means things that we don't want to do. I tell myself, don't do it, and I do it. I tell myself, get out of bed, it's five o'clock. You know, I can, I can, my snooze, I can program to ring every minute, or every two minutes, or every three minutes, or every four minutes. The, Russia. the realm of the Russia is not simply defined by the sin, by the compromise. It's defined by the cycle of compromise. The cycle of compromise really means even when I'm not compromised, I'm compromised. Because I'm not being genuine about my will, about motivation, about my effort at stopping the cycle of compromise. And the only way to stop the cycle, stop the cycle of compromise is through this discipline, through this Kabbalah sale, through, this, through taking upon myself discipline, not about the sin itself, but about the whole tendency towards weakness. This is the world of the Russia, of the compromised person. I want to say one more thing before we go on to the perfect Russia. And that is, the Alter Rebbe discusses Tshuva in Tanya. He mentions it here in chapter 11, which is our topic. And he also visits it again in chapter 17. What does Tshuva mean? Tshuva means returning to God. According to Torah, tshuva, which means return to God, is first of all about not being punished. That's the first reason to do tshuva. The first reason to do tshuva is you shouldn't be punished. That's what the Gemara says. Do an Avedis, be punished. You do tshuva, you're not punished. But there are other reasons for tshuva, higher reasons for tshuva, deeper reasons for the tshuva. And they are to become resensitized, to become refined. We understand the model of Rosh. The Rosh is a compromised person. The compromise is measured in actions. But it's the person that's compromised, not just the actions. We are weak. We know we're weak, and in a way we want to stop being weak, but in a way we don't want to give up weakness altogether because it feels good. You know, we want to hold on to it just for the weekends, you know, just from time to time. It's a revolving door of Rosh. It's not like a true is insincere, but it's not with those teeth that say this is not going to happen again. When the Altarebbe discusses tshuva, he talks about not just not being punished, but he talks about resensitization. Resensitization means to say the nature of compromise is that it begets more compromise. I don't have to tell you this, this is common sense. Weakness begets weakness, that's the way it works. When you give in a little, you will give in a little more. You give in a little more, it's just the way it works. That's the nature of the person. When we, we have an option of being human or animal-like, giving in is animalistic, it's weak. The more we give in, the more likely we are to give in in the future. The Alzheimer's makes the argument that tshuva not just affects that we shouldn't be punished. Theoretically, tshuva can actually end the 
the cycle and the spiraling out of control and the, the, the pattern of weakness begotting weakness because it actually resensitizes us. It gives us more of a feel because tshuva is very emotional. When you do tshuva, yes, technically speaking, you're saying to God, I did this and I won't do it anymore, but there's emotion attached to tshuva. And the emotion attached to tshuva, at least in theory, can resensitize the person. In other words, tshuva can actually stop the cycle of repetitive um, compromise in our practical lives. So Atrebbe talks about tshuva being a process by which we can actually become resensitized. The key, however, is commitment. In other words, saying I'm sincere is not the issue. Meaning I'm sincere is not the issue. Doing the work is. In other words, for tshuva to actually be a process by which we don't repeat. Now, I want to tell you something. There is, there is the radical tshuva. There's the extreme tshuva, what we call the hit, hitting rock bottom tshuva. You know? Some people just swing from one extreme to the next. When life can't get any worse, you, you're catapulted into a positive direction. That, that's the, you know, the, the, the phenomenon of tshuva we see in our times is people completely changing their lives in an incredibly short period of time. That's an extreme kind of tshuva. And to a great degree, that's a gift from God. You cannot ever create enough energy to change your whole life emotionally with tshuva by yourself. God has to inspire that. I, I teach many types of people, and amongst the people that I teach are by the tshuva. I always believe, say and believe that we're all Baal tshuvas. Even those of us born with, you know, with holy parents, we're, all, we're a tshuva generation. But I tell people, if you've ever experienced that incredibly extreme leap from the abyss of weakness into incredible empowerment of st- and strength, it's, it's a gift from God. And I say to people, could you visualize doing tshuva with that intensity a second time? You get that once in a lifetime. That kind of unbelievable jump is... To do it more than once in a life, the first time God gives it to you, the second time you have to earn it fair and square. That kind of tshuva is incredible. And it's that kind of tshuva that the Gemara says and that Amman Paskins and Desire confirms is higher than the tzaddik. But we don't maintain it. For most of us, tshuva is more involved. It's not this incredible power that just propels us out of weakness into strength and clarity. It's a struggle. And the struggle is not, I don't want to do this anymore. The struggle is not, I won't do it anymore. The struggle is the discipline. The struggle is the work to become a balabayas, become a master over oneself. You know, it's, it's like, it begins with coming one minute late to the minion. What's one minute? Understand that the Alter Rebbe proposes that when a person is interested in doing tshuva, and tshuva doesn't simply, tshuva technically means saying, I won't do it anymore. That's the halacha. You say, well, do it anymore, you're not going to be punished. But the exercise of tshuva, by which one becomes resensitized, it's not simply commitment and sincerity, it's the work of discipline. You'll see in chapter 17, that the Altarebbe says, you don't even need to have the highest levels of tshuva, even a lower level of tshuva. A person is committed to changing themselves in a particular area of their lives, and is prepared to do the work, they can. And we know it. If there's a particular thing in your life which is causing you a lot of trouble and you say, you know, i, I got to stop this behavior. It doesn't mean necessarily I'm going to become <coughs> perfect in every area of my life. But one particular area of your life which you see as so self-destructive or so bad, yet, you say, I'm going to create the exercises, I'm going to create the discipline necessary for this behavior to be interrupted. Tshuva has the power to reverse the cycle, the tendency the spiral of, um, of compromise, at least in an area. And that's the good news. You know, when the Altareva wrote his essay on tshuva, people asked the Altareva, why did he write an essay on tshuva? There's 101 books on tshuva. So he says, all of the books on tshuva that exist describe tshuva as something which is a virtual impossibility. I wanted to demonstrate the, the reality of tshuva. Tshuva is not only a good philosophy, it's a good practical way of life. So this is the situation with the Russia, with the compromised person. Go ahead. There is another way, or maybe it's the same way, but to think about it a different way. Um, it's about desire. Which desire wins over? Desire to do something that makes you weak, or desire to be strong? Whichever desire you let into your life, 
Of course, what you said is that another way, or it's, it's, it's a, another way of thinking about it. Well, here's the bottom line <clears throat> if it works, you're a disciplined person. That would work for me from here till I came walked across. It's exactly the same thing. You see, but my desire to do the right thing rather than the easy thing is not as simply as desiring it. It takes an incredible amount. Well, there's a lot. No, no. The the bottom line is not to do the sin. Right. That's all. And if you don't do the sin, that means you do have strength of character. The mental exercise works. If you're a disciplined person, so it doesn't matter which way I get there. It's, it's the same. It's the same. It's exactly the same. It's, thing. Okay. it's exactly it's the okay. same thing. It's the same thing. The key is you don't do what you have to and not do what you shouldn't because you tell yourself you do what you have to, not do what you shouldn't because you're strong. And the the problem with that Asha character is that he's weak. He's weak even when he's not doing anything wrong. So it's a cycle. He feels bad, then he feels well, he good, then he feels... He does, he does, he does. But the tshuva, which is about not just feeling bad, but actually changing oneself, is a, it's, it's, it's not such a simple commitment, you know? And then, then there's the work. And the Al-Tareb, you know, like I said, the Al-Tareb's chassidim were raised with the sense that said, tshuva is not philosophy, and it's not good intentions. Tshuva is the real regaining of mastery over self. I sinned and I won't sin again. And it doesn't begin with not sinning. It begins with discipline. And that's why I said to you before that part of the model of Hasidus, of Avoida, by the Alter Rebbe's Hasidim, by Hasidus Pachlal, was Bitala Just don't give yourself what you want, even if it's completely legitimate. Because you want to gain control over yourself. So you have to break the pattern of weakness which defines so many of us. Right. Now, the Tanya finishes the chapter by talking about the complete Rasha. A complete Rasha is a person who not only is compromised, he doesn't care. It's no longer compromised anymore. It's whatever I want. He doesn't view it as weakness. He has no conscience. He's not doing true. He doesn't feel bad. He just does whatever he wants. There's absolutely no feelings of guilt and remorse whatsoever. Call Russia, even though if, even if he doesn't know, he's doing something wrong. It's still Russia. I mean, I mean, he's doing something wrong. But on the other hand, he doesn't know. You're asking a technical question with a lot of emotion. Um, the answer is no. He's not a Russia. Okay, he's not a Russia. The problem, however, is when he will discover he's doing something wrong, because of the predisposition. He just can't become a tzaddik. He's going to have to become a baltruva, which he has to take to an extreme. A rasha is a person who has no guilt whatsoever. And I have to tell you like this. Al-Tarebbe writes to Tanya, and as I explained to you in one of my recent classes that we had, he likes to give equal time. You know, for the sake of honesty, he gives the godly soul his time, the animal soul his time. But the Al-Tarebbe's equal time is like a hundred lines of godly soul and a line and a half of animal soul. That's considered in Al-Tarebbe's world equal time. So the whole rasha gets four and a half lines. The whole, this perfect Russia gets four and a half lines. And in those four and a half lines, he says something positive about him too. The first thing about the Russia, Dr. Rebbe says, is he's lost, he's lost his, his sense of conscience. He's lost his sense of guilt. He's lost his sense of right and wrong. He doesn't care. A compromised person means I give in to weakness. The root of compromise is weakness. This person doesn't view it as compromise. doesn't view it as weakness. I'm an animal. Why not? Now, Tarebbe describes it as a person whose neshama has completely been removed from the consciousness of their being. It's the neshama which is the reason for the guilt. The neshama is the reason for the revolving door of tshuva that we're describing. And in the perfect rasha, the neshama has in effect ceased to assert itself on his consciousness. He doesn't feel the neshama, and as well, he has no feelings of, this is terrible, I shouldn't have done it, and so forth and so on. He's cold. He has absolutely no feelings. And a perfect Russia is a pretty, pretty difficult place to be. Now, there are perfect Russias that are called mummers, mummerim, mummerlahaches. A mummer is not just an evil person, a, a, a sinner. A mummer is a defiant person. A person who's not only doing things that are wrong, but he's got, a, he's got an opinion, he's got an issue. I am going to mock the will of God. I'm going to mock the religion. A mummer is a bad person is an evil person.
A Rasha could be he's just lost his sensitization to such a degree that he has absolutely no feeling. It's a terrible place to be. Now, if a person is a perfect Rasha, they're trapped in their Rashahood, Rashaism, because they have absolutely no motivation to change that circumstance. When the perfect the person is less than a perfect Rasha, in other words, they're compromised with an awareness, with a consciousness, so they can walk through the revolving door of Chuva, and one day they're going to decide, I'm not doing it anymore. You know, I had an experience in Yeshiva. A real story. I sat in Medrash, you know, I'll tell you, now it's probably 300 students. When I was there, it was 45 boys, and we thought it was a big yeshiva. So I sat with my chibrusa, and next to us was another pair. And our neighbors were in perpetual conversation, always talking. The conversations were quite interesting, because very frequently I was drawn into those conversations. But they didn't learn a Jewish word. Not for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year, for two years, they just sat and chatted. And it was a lot of very good stuff. But the title wasn't flying into your head because the Gemara was open. You know, the best conversations are held over an open Gemara. If you ever in the middle of a conversation, you find it boring, get a Gemara, open it up, and the conversation will suddenly become interesting. So one of the two members of this Chavrusa, just, I'll never forget, one day got up and said, you know, I'm sick and tired of wasting my time. I want to learn. He took his Gemara, he walked away, sat by himself, and he started to study. So it became the biggest joke. Ha, ha, ha. He's learning. We figured it in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> this guy hadn't sat in his message. He didn't take his nose out of the book for two years. He, he, he kept it. In other words, it wasn't like he had one of those arousals, one of those moments, you know. He hated himself enough that he, he wouldn't, wouldn't learn with a study partner because he knew study partners are the source of all conversation. And he, would, he sat and learned for several years from that, I, I, I know the guy. I went to yeshiva with him. and he, you know, He's not somebody I read about in a book. Th- that's called tshuva. That's called resensitizing oneself. Breaking the cycle of compromise. A perfect rasha doesn't have that possibility because a perfect rasha has no guilt. So what about a perfect rasha? How do perfect rashas do tshuva? So I want to share with you two points about this perfect rasha. The first is mentioned here in the Tanya. And the second is mentioned in other places in the time. As I told you before, the Alter Rebbe likes to offer equal time. The Alter Rebbe likes to offer equal time. Uh, but when the Alter Rebbe offers equal time, it's not exactly equal. He gives the perfect Russia four and a half lines and he finds something positive about it. What's the positive thing the Alter Rebbe says about the perfect Russia? It's the following. The Talmud says that when you have ten Jews in a room, the Shekhinah is present. The Gemara says, Ten Jews in the room, the Shekhinah is present. It doesn't make a difference, men, women, children, Jews, the Shekhinah is present. Later in the Tanya, and he gets the Kedish of Gimel, in the 23rd letter, which we'll get to in about 22 years, the Al-Tarebbe says something interesting, that he heard from his teachers, from the Holy Magid and the Holy Baal Shem Tov, that if 10 Jews are in a room, it doesn't matter what they're doing, and an angel walks in, a Malach walks in, he will be overwhelmed with fear. Because of the presence of the Shekhinah that's there. Because of the presence of the Shekhinah, the presence of God. The light of God, the manifestation of God. So the Al-Tarebbe here quotes this Mamachazal, indicating very plainly, if you get ten Roshas, perfect Roshas in a room, but they're Jewish, and perfect Roshas don't exactly discuss religion, and if they do, you don't want to listen to the conversation, it'll be very depressing. Ten Roshas come together in a room, the Ebishter is there. Because though it's true that they become so desensitized that the word compromise no longer applies to them, even if you don't want to use the word evil, but they're certainly not they're beyond compromise, they have no feelings, they're Jewish. And because they're Jewish and have Jewish souls, they have godliness in them, notwithstanding the fact that it isn't conscious. And one of the expressions of it is, you can count them for a minion. The famous story with the Hill of Parach. Hill of Parach was a tzaddik, who was the inspired person we talked about last week. And he was once one person shy of a minion. He had nine men. He needed a minion. And he was the kind of person, if he didn't get his minion, he would get physically sick. You know? Like he would miss a meal or a night's sleep. He missed a minion, he would get physically sick. So he says to the host, is there any other Jews in the neighborhood? Yeah, there's one guy, but he's, he's a Rosh, he's a Mechal Shabbos, he's a Echot he's my Targoy. Call him. And when Bilal, he came into the Bilal, and he told him, I want you to know, I'm a Rosh. And he included him in his minion. 
even though some people would say, you know, he's not such a good Jew. Then why did he come if he's such a Rasha? Because he was complimented he by the simple fact that Rabbi Hillel was interested in including him in his minion. There's an so end to the story. Already not, not necessarily. Okay, well, you're a nice lady. <laughs> and the Tanya said that the Abishta is a nice Abishta. Ten Rishoyim, because they're Jewish, Hashem joined in their presence because a Jew always has a Jewish spark, even if it isn't conscious. conscious. And finally, and in conclusion, let me say this one more thing. If a person is a plain Rosh, right, which means a compromised person, and the root of compromise is weakness, they're in a position to do tshuva. The person is a perfect Russia. They're beyond compromise and they're beyond awareness of weakness. They just don't care. They too have a possibility for tshuva. In chapter 19, which we'll get to eventually, the Altarebbe describes such a personality. And he uses the word galut, exile. He doesn't use this word here, but he uses the word there. Exile means my godly soul has no expression. I've explained this to you many times. The translation of the word exile means I'm stuck in a place and I can't free myself. A captive cannot redeem himself from his own prison. The, the, the perfect Rosh's Nisham is in exile. There's no expression. It says the al when a Jew's raw nerve is touched and the raw nerve is touched is when you try to Touch the place in the Jew where, in effect, you're saying to the Jew, announce yourself as a non Jew. Consciously cut yourself off from the identity as a Jew. Something happens. And even a perfect Russia becomes a fiery lion, becomes a, 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 an extremely inspired person. As long as you tell a Jew, Keep doing what you're doing. You're still Jewish. You're a Jew at heart. You're a Jew in part. God loves you anyway. When you corner a Jew who's a complete Russia, has absolutely no guilt, no conscience, and say to him, do an act that is your declaration to the effect, I am not a Jew, something magic happens. And though we're dealing with a person with zero feelings, a fire is aroused because a Jew can't cut himself off from God. He can only convince himself that he's still connected. And even if he's the perfect Rasha with no conscience, someplace he's made peace with himself and told himself, me and God, we've got it figured out. But at the point at which a Jew has to consciously cut himself from the Abishtad, that line, the Rebbe says, for the most part, a Jew cannot cross. So this perfect Rasha, first of all, he invites the Shekhinah because there's holiness there. And secondly, if you touch the, the essence, the rawest nerve in a Jew, it emerges. Now, in normal, the normal illustration for this is the idea of idol worship. Tell a Jew to, 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 to worship idols, to worship another god. He cannot do it. But for every person, it's something different. In, in recent times, the thing that touches the raw nerve is when you tell a Jew to hurt another Jew. To hurt another Jew. What it is that touches that point in a Jew where a Jew has to say to himself, by doing this act, I am severing my link to the Jewish people. For each person, it means something different. And to some people, it's they can you know, convert to a different religion, they can adopt all kinds of other practices, but they can't hurt another Jew. I've told you this before. After the Six-Day War, there was an incredible high rate of divorce amongst intermarried couples. Six-Day War is over 40 years ago. Jews married to Goyim, in Texas, in Alabama, in Wyoming, in Hawaii, you know, these were not just assimilated Jews. These were, you know, lost Jews. They had no connection to Jews whatsoever. They married, you know, real wasps, real hot-blooded Americans. And all of a sudden, there's a war in Israel, and they can't sleep. And their spouse would say to them, what do you have to do with those, you know, with those Zionists? I'm a Jew, so... There were studies done on this. And all of a sudden, the spouse realized, I do not know my partner. Why should an event that's occurring 10,000 miles away with a nation with whom he has absolutely no real link matter so much that he's 
He's consumed with worry. It's not like he has a passive interest. It's something which is so consuming. Because that event, the Six-Day War, revealed the Pintalayid like no other since the Holocaust. It, it, it sharpened, it brought to the absolute finest point, I'm Jewish. There was an incredible unity in the Jewish world all across the globe at that moment because it was a moment of incredible fear and incredible crisis and Jews who had absolutely no identity as Jews were woken up and this is an illustration of this idea that when you touch the very pintle, the very, very essence of the neshama, even a person with really no feelings, no sentiments, he doesn't consider himself compromised, he considers himself disengaged, and it's aroused. And I'm going to finish with a cute little thing. I was a teenager when I knew even more than when I was 20. I had a, a chavrusa for Miftzayim. We used to go to put film on people on Friday afternoons, and when yeshiva was over, we'd go to... Wilshire Boulevard, and we had a route, as it's called, and we'd visit different stores, different businesses, and uh, encourage people to do mitzvahs. My chavrusa, my study partner for Miftzayim, was crazy. He was just over the top. I mean, there's nothing he wouldn't do. I'm, I'm the reserve type. I'm not the world's greatest salesman. And he had really no fear. And he had this shtick, which I was a witness to, not once or twice, but a hundred times, or many times. He'd meet people on the street. Now, Wilshire Boulevard is not exactly Kingston Avenue, you understand? So, are you Jewish? <coughs> no, I'm not Jewish. So he had this mishagas. When somebody said they were Jewish, he would say to them, you're not a Jew, and he'd keep walking. Are you Jewish? No, you're not a Jew, and he'd keep walking. Again and again and again, the people would very angrily say, I'm Jewish, and leave me alone. He would ask them if they're Jewish and didn't want to be bothered by this Jaime from Brooklyn, you understand? So they would tell them they're not Jewish, bug off. So he would simply repeat their words. You're not a Jew. And they would get so disturbed. It didn't happen once, it happened almost consistently. When I say I'm not Jewish, I've got to figure it out. When you tell me I'm not a Jew, don't you tell me I'm not Jewish. I'm more <laughs> Jewish than Moses. So the, even the perfect Rashid, Alter Rebbe says that the Shema is always present. So though the Alter Rebbe devotes four and a half lines to describing how disconnected the perfect Russia is, he finds a positive spin on it. So in summary, what did we learn? There's a category of a Jew called a Russia. Now, in tradition, Russia means a sinner, an evil person. In the Tanya, Russia simply means not only he's uninspired, but he's compromised. And the beginning of compromise is weakness, and the beginning of weakness is temptation. And the solution to all of that is tshuva. The problem with Chuva is that we got to really change. And we don't want to do that. We want to quasi-change. We want to change for a couple of days a week from time to time. Okay. Now, the Patek may be a little listen to, difficult to listen to, but one thing you cannot deny is that it's quite true what Dalton Rebbe has to say. It's not, uh, it's not uh, ain't soft. This is very real. This is life. Okay. <laughs>